Good morning, everyone. Hope you are well. Uh, when, when I was growing up, I uh, attended a church where the pastors would sit on the stage. There were kind of three or four rather large chairs uh, up, up on the stage, and the, the senior pastor, as he was called, he had a phone on the side of his chair. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know what's happening when he grabs that thing, but it must be pretty important. And so I always thought, boy, it'd be kind of cool to be a part of those conversations. And so today, I, I kind of had that same experience. I, I was over here to the side, and I was worshiping, and, and Billy came up to me for like one of those private pastoral conversations. And I was like, ooh, like this is, this is going to be good. And he said to me, uh, James, you need to tell people to scoot to the middle because um, we don't have enough seats, to which I replied, no. No, I'm not going to do that because if you get here early and you get a seat like along the aisle, like on the side, I just personally, I think those are the best seats. And so I might even come a couple minutes early so I get one of those seats. And so if I'm settled into that seat and someone else who was late comes and says, excuse me, I need you to move so I can sit in the desirable seat, like all bets are off. Like I'm not going to be a part of that conversation. I don't want to see. So he, he asked that. I'm like, Lord, this is a test. Like this is a t- I think there are tests in the Christian life where you're like, am I going to extend grace and mercy to someone in their time of need? I'm like, Lord, please help us pass this test. So listen, if you're here this morning and you had to move to the center so someone who was late could sit on the end, I hope you pass the test. I hope you pass the test. I love that. I love that. We are in John chapter 8. Uh, This morning, Phil read the passage uh, to you. We're working through the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John, believe it or not, is all about Jesus. It is a gospel that is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, uh, you may have life in his name. And so that is my hope and prayer uh, this morning, that you, that we would have life uh, in the name of Jesus. Uh, Well, I I think it's safe to say uh, that Motel 6 has not changed the world in any good sort of way. I haven't spoken to anyone recently who has said, you know what, I'd like to take a long vacation, to which I reply, where would you like to stay? To only hear them reply, Motel 6. It's not necessarily your go-to, and even though it might not be your destination of choice, Motel 6 actually does have a great little slogan, right? Do you, do you know the slogan for Motel 6? Yeah, we'll, we'll leave the light on for you. Isn't that sweet? Like, I, we're expecting you. You may never come. Maybe you don't want to come, but if you come, we'll leave the light on for you. I love that. It's so welcoming. You know, it's one thing to say, we'll leave the light on for you, and it's another thing to say, we or I and the light. Uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus uh, said to the people, uh, I am the light of the world. What a statement. What a powerful and bold statement. To fully appreciate the declaration of Jesus, we must uh, remember uh, this scene, what is taking place around the people and around Jesus uh, when he speaks these words. Because what, is he, what Jesus is going to do here in John chapter 8 is make this bold declaration. 
And then he is going to extend an invitation uh, to the people. It's the same invitation that he extends to you and to me today. Uh, He is going to provide a promise, uh, something that is true, and then he is going to elicit a response. So he's going to make this bold statement, namely, I am the light of the world. He's going to extend an invitation. It's the same invitation that's going to be extended to you. He is going to provide a promise, and then he is going to elicit a response. So remember, what is taking place here in John chapter 8 began in John chapter 7. I know that sounds crazy, but early in John chapter 7, verse 2, there is this verse that oftentimes we glance over, we don't think anything of it. It's John 7, 2. It reads, Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. Did anyone memorize that verse if you went to Awana as a kid? Anyone? Anyone? Of course you didn't. No one has memorized that verse. And yet this verse uh, really sets the stage for what is taking place. Uh, The Gospel of John talks about four festivals or feasts that Jesus is going to speak into. It talks about the Sabbath, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this Feast of Booze, and then uh, Hanukkah. And so uh, during this feast, there are events that are taking place that are causing people uh, to remember the work of God on behalf of the people of God. The Feast of Tabernacles in particular was a seven-day celebration of God's provision uh, for His people as the people uh, wandered in uh, the wilderness. And so it was a great time of celebration. All Jewish people, regardless of where they lived, would come and they would descend upon uh, the city uh, from, from everywhere. It was required that they would go and they would make makeshift tents or booths uh, to stay in. This was designed so that they might have a visual reminder uh, for what the people of God experienced and how um, God provided for the people uh, during their time of wandering. The booths were small. Uh, they were temporary shelters with thatched roofs And they were decorated with different kinds of fruits that grew in Palestine. In keeping with the purpose to remember the wilderness journey, uh, later Israelites added a water-pouring ceremony uh, to this occasion. The officiating priests would draw water from the pool of Shalom and pour it into the basin near the altar uh, in the temple. You remember how we talked about this a few weeks ago, how we kind of set the stage and we tried to uh, imagine the picture of this uh, taking place? The, the crowds would gather, they would chant psalms, and they would wave their branches. Uh, as they approached the pool, the priest uh, would dip his water basin uh, into the pool of water, and the people would recite from Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3 with joy you will draw water with the wells of salvation. Uh, Then the crowd would march back to the temple, uh, entering through a place called the water gate, and the priest would blast his trumpets. Uh, The priest would then circle the altar once, ascend with accompanying priests to the platform, and pour the water out, and the people would recite these words. With joy, you all draw water from the wells of of salvation. We uh, remembered the significance of that moment uh, specifically as it pertains to Jesus uh, during this time on the last day of the feast 
uh, raising his voice and saying to the people, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. These festivals, these feasts that we read about in John's gospel and other places in scripture, they may come across to us as a bit strange or even out of date. Uh, They may uh, strike us as things that took place uh, sometime long ago in history, but they have little impact uh, for your life and for my life uh, today. And yet, uh, these feasts were significant for God's people because it would cause them uh, to remember something they were called not to forget. And the thing that they were called to remember was ultimately the work of God on their behalf. Um, They, like us, have a tendency to be a forgetful people. Uh, We forget important events. Uh, We, even as the people of God, oftentimes forget the work of God. Uh, Things come into our life that clouds our vision and our perspective. And so we focus on other lesser things. These feasts or these festivals uh, for the people of God were important because uh, they were a way to remember um, that God, um, God was the one who provided for them in their time of need. It's interesting when you study the Old Testament and you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 when the people of God are about to go into the promised land, God warns them and says, hey, just so you know, I'm about to bless your socks off. Like, life is going to be good for you. You are going to go from wandering in the wilderness to settling into a land filled with milk and honey. Um, And you will be a blessed people and and everything that that entails. Like, you're going to have houses to live in and you are going to have food to eat. And God warns the people kind of on the front end of them going into the promised land and says to them, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Because sometimes in times of abundance, in times of plenty, uh, we are tempted to forget God's hand in providing for us. Um, Secondly, these festivals were important uh, because there was a temptation for the people to kind of sit back and look at everything they had been given and think to themselves, look at what we have accomplished. Look at what we have done. And these festivals serve as a reminder that, no, no, this is God's hand. This is what God has done for you and in you and through you. This is not because of your mighty hand. It is because of God's. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read about those reminders, I think to myself, both of those are temptations for us. There is a temptation when life goes well, when we have what we need, when we even have an abundance, uh, to forget the God who provided it for us. Like, you just think to yourself, I mean, what what more do we need? We have everything at our fingertips. If we need food, we buy food. Uh, If we want a vacation, we take a vacation. If we need to store away for a rainy day, we store away for a rainy day. If we need help with something, we ask Google. Like we have everything that we need at our fingertips and there can be a temptation when that happens uh, to forget the Lord. 
There also can be a temptation for us when life goes well uh, for us to sit back and think, look at all that I've accomplished. Like, I've, I've worked hard. I've studied. I've sacrificed. I've given. And when we experience the fruit of our labor, uh, we're tempted to think that it is because of our own hand, our own gifts, or our own talents, or our own human ingenuity uh, that we are where we are and not the hand of God. And so these feasts and these festivals grounded the people of God. Um, They reminded the people of God what they were prone to forget. And so John chapter 8, when we walk through this story together, is is really an extension of one of these feasts, the Feast of Booths. According to John chapter 8, verse 20, this scene occurred in the treasury, or more technically, a place that was called the Court of Women. That large court was one of the busiest parts of the temple. Uh, On one side, there was a colonnade with 13 great uh, treasure chests. Uh, The chests were called trumpets because they were shaped like trumpets standing on their faces. They were narrow at the top, and they rounded out on the bottom. According to author William Barclay, these trumpets promoted a program of designated giving. Because of the trumpets, this part of the temple was very important and heavily traded. It is where people would essentially bring their tithes and their offerings. And it it was required that people would do this. And so when you think about the busiest part of the temple, this would be it. It was a gathering place for the people. So remember, we we talked about um, two important uh, ceremonies that were a part, or there were two important ceremonies that were a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. One, as we have seen, was the pouring out of the water, right? We talked about that earlier. Uh, The other was called the illumination of the temple. This is significant because it sets the stage for the words of Jesus. This was a spectacular celebration. In the center of the treasury, there were four great torches uh, that were set up. Uh, Some accounts say the torches were as high as the highest walls of the temple. And then at the top of these golden candelabras, there were these great bowls that contained 65 liters of oil. Uh, What would happen is that there would be a ladder against the candelabrum, and in the evening, a healthy priest would climb uh, the ladder, and they would light essentially what served as this massive candle in the temple. And when they would light the wick, um, these candles would light up so much that wherever you were in the temple, you could see the bright lights, but not just in the temple. I mean, you could see these lights from a distance. It's as if the worshiper could, could see from a distance as they came toward the temple that the temple was lit with these torches. I don't know if you've ever had an experience before where you've been flying in a plane over a city, uh, you're high up in the sky, and you look down, and you see the city lit up. Have you ever done that before? It's, it's fascinating. You look over the city, and you can see a stadium or a skyscraper or an important building, and it just stands out in the midst of all these lesser lights or in the midst of darkness. You can't help but notice it. Well, people couldn't help uh, but notice these lights uh, when they were lit. It was spectacular. 
of the Mishnah, a book that contains the oral traditions of the Jewish people, wrote about this and said, Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets and instruments of music. They would dance until dawn. Uh, it was a great festival celebrating the great pillar of fire that led people, the people of Israel during uh, their time in the wilderness. So you can, I mean, you can see this scene in your mind, in your, in your eyes' mind. You can imagine what it would be like uh, for a worshiper to be in the temple or near the temple and to see these torches light up uh, the, the sky. It is that backdrop, it's that backdrop that Jesus um, in, in the midst of a busy crowd, raises his voice and speaks, proclaims these words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I cannot imagine a more dramatic way uh, for the Savior of the world uh, to announce uh, to the people that in him was life. His words not only would cause people to recall how God provided light for his people when they wandered through the wilderness, uh, but it was a pronouncement that Jesus was in fact light. Remember the, the light that would guide people in the Old Testament when God's people wandered through the wilderness? Exodus chapter 13 verse 21 uh, tells us about it. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart uh, from before the temple. So God, God gave the people light, not, not LED lights, uh, but, but miraculously he provided light. His very presence was light for people. And so when Jesus is standing in the temple during this ceremony, during this time when the torches have been lit, he makes a, a bold claim that he is the light of the world. Jesus is making a pronouncement that in him is life. I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is, what is Jesus claiming uh, when he says that he is the light of the world? Because that's a, it's kind of a Bible idea, right? We read that, maybe we've heard it before, we're familiar with it, but what did Jesus mean when he said it? Well, when you think about light, oftentimes we think about light in one of two senses. We think about physical light or we think about spiritual light. Um, physically, light provides protection. When you go to bed at night, you turn on a light outside so that other people know you're home. Or uh, when you're a kid, uh, you turn on a light in a hallway or a bathroom because there is this sense where that brings you comfort. Like you want to see your surroundings. You want to know if someone is coming. A light also provides beauty. Now, if you've ever driven by a house at nighttime that was well lit, but you look and you go, oh, that, that's a pretty house. 
Maybe you've walked into a house before that was well lit or lit in a certain way, and you go, man, there's just something about this space that is soothing to me, or it, it brightens up a home. Not only did light provide protection or, or beauty, but light, I mean, physical light, the sun provides life. A physical light provides life. If there is no light, uh, there is no life. Life or light gives life. And so Jesus is claiming here when he utters these words that he is life. Uh, He is life. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 reads, For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The beginning part of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, reads, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Psalm 119, verse 90, You have established the earth, and it stands fast Verse 91, by your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. When Jesus is claiming to be light, he is claiming to be the source of existence. Uh, He is light. Uh, When Jesus said, I am the light, it was the second of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. So Jesus is attempting to reveal himself uh, to the people. And so the Gospel of John, Jesus makes these bold claims, things like, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. This is the second of seven of those statements. Jesus wants his hearers to know that in him there is life. So don't miss this. Don't miss this because it's easy uh, for us to miss it. Jesus is making a claim about himself. Jesus is giving us a framework for how we view the world, right? And all of us uh, view the world a certain way. All of us, even though we wouldn't maybe attach this vocabulary to it, uh, there is a framework that we see life, all of life. Um, And and this is true for all of us. And so Jesus is trying to give a framework to people for how to view the world. Um, Last week, uh, Melissa and I had the opportunity to take our oldest son for orientation at college. He will be attending NC State in the fall. And so we drove the two hours and 15 minutes to Raleigh uh, to sit in Wonderful meetings for a day and a half that were incredibly informative. And we pulled into the parking lot on that first day of orientation on Monday morning. And, you know, like I'm a bit of a goofball. I don't know if you know this or not. So we find a little parking spot and we park and I turn around and I said, Hey, uh, Cademan, I got a question for you. Just be honest do you think that I'm going to be one of the cooler dads who's here today? I thought it was a legitimate question. To which Cademan replied, Dad, I'm pretty sure the cool dads aren't asking that question. (laughs) Apparently, you thought it was funnier than I did. 
Uh, no, it was, it was really funny. It was a good line. I was like, touche. Like, that's, that's probably true. They're probably not asking that question. But uh, that, was, that was the start of our orientation. It is described by every student there as boring. Um, and I think it's probably described by every parent who goes there as sad. Because the, the end is in sight. They're sending their kids off to college. I had a strange experience when I was there, though. I have, a tendency, uh, I have a tendency to think and watch. And so I'm watching um, all of these students uh, run around and try to meet new people and kind of put their best foot forward, try to make an impression, uh, try to learn a little bit about the school or where they need to go and when they need to be there. Uh, they learn things like what to expect in college life, what are expectations, what are costs, what about safety, what about internships, co-ops, opportunities, and any, anything and everything else you can imagine under the sun. And I see parents uh, like myself like following around their student with a little, little binder, a little folder in tow with their own little questions. And there's all these emotions and thoughts that are running both through the students' minds and hearts and through the parents. I couldn't help but think that the students are coming, and this is true of any college student, the students are coming to experience life and to figure out life and to decide what to do with their life. These are massive questions. Massive questions. For the next four or maybe five years, they're going to chase after the same thing that you and I chase after. They are going to chase after life. They want it. They're desperate for it. They attach different words to it. They talk about finding themselves and growing into their own skin and doing life on their own terms. But what they want is life. And what I thought to myself is, us, as parents, uh, we are not a whole lot different. We want the same thing. We want life. Oftentimes, the practical things that we wrestle with or that we think about, whether it's our finances or our relationships, our friendships, marriage, career, etc., at, at the core of those ideas is this desire and pursuit uh, for a particular kind of life or quality of life or experience in life. I believe that this is ingrained in us. So one day Jesus stands before the people and says, do you want life? Do you want it? Come to me. I am the light of the world. Jesus extends an invitation. He provides a promise and he elicits a response. What is his invitation? His invitation is here in John chapter 8, verse 12. Whoever follows me. This is an invitation to follow Jesus. It is an invitation to be his disciple. It is an invitation to align your life with his way of life. 
um, to, to follow his word, to read his word, and to bring yourself up under his word. This is not an invitation uh, to, to check a box and say a prayer and be done with it and go live your life. This is an invitation to follow the author of life, whoever follows me, whoever, whoever. So apparently, in some sense, this is a wide invitation. This is an invitation for the rebel. This is an invitation for the self-righteous. This is an invitation for someone with their GED and with their PhD. It is an invitation for the rich, and it is an invitation for the poor. Whoever follows me. Jesus extends an invitation. The same invitation that is extended to the people in the temple that day, I would argue, is extended to you and to me today. Like whoever, like you, that's you. Whoever follows me. Here's the promise. Jesus provides a promise. Uh, Whoever follows uh, me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows Jesus, whoever is a disciple of uh, Jesus, whoever loves Jesus will not walk in darkness. Darkness in Scripture is a picture of sin. Uh, Darkness is death. It is a picture of chaos. And all of us um, have experienced it at some point in time in our lives, right? We, we've, we've walked in darkness. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, says it this way, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is a picture of who we were before Jesus. Like we walked in darkness. We've experienced that. All of us have experienced that. All of us have had a point in life uh, where we've asked ourselves, like, how did I get here? Like Like, how did I end up here? It feels like death in darkness. Jesus makes a promise to his followers that they don't have to walk in darkness anymore, that they can experience life. So he extends an invitation, he provides a promise, and then he elicits a response. He elicits a response. So he offers life to whomever will follow him. That's the invitation. He gives them a promise, and then he calls the people to respond. As you can imagine, if Jesus stands up in front of a group of people in the temple with the lights, with the torches lit up, um, and says something like, I am the light of the world, there are going to be some people that simply say, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. No, you're not. You might want to leave the light on for me, but don't say you're the light. And that's essentially what the spiritual leaders do to Jesus. They listen uh, to his bold claim, and they essentially say to him, you, sir, are a liar. You're a liar. That is not true. Like, who, who says that? Like, you and what army, essentially, is what they say. And this is how Jesus responds. Listen to this. This is John. We read the passage earlier. John chapter 8, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You're a liar. 
Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because this hour had not yet come. So the people tell Jesus, like, oh yeah, you're the light of the world? Says who? You're a liar. And Jesus said, me and my father. Like, that's who? Like, I've come to do my father's will. I've come to do my father's will work. This is Jesus stepping on toes again, by the way. Jesus is stepping on toes. He, he is ruffling feathers. He does this, you know. Like, like Jesus does this. He speaks truth. He exposes the lostness of the human heart to the open air. He is not shy about this. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Yes, he is compassionate. He is full of grace and mercy. He is kind. And Jesus is the ultimate truth teller. Listen to his words in John chapter 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Hello. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, and you, uh, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So again, we have two very different responses. Jesus tells some in the crowd, the religious leaders, you will die in your sins. Uh, You are from below, I am from above. Essentially, uh, I'm going to heaven and you're not. That's what he told uh, the people. I'm going to be with my father and you will not. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. So Jesus identifies the problem. Uh, And, and this is so key, Jesus identifies the problem and he offers a solution. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus didn't only come Uh, to tell a lost and dying world that they were lost and dying. Uh, Jesus also came uh, to be the solution for the people. 
He said, you will lift me up. Jesus is saying, you will crucify me on a cross. Because that's why Jesus came. Uh, He came uh, to pay for our sin. He came to confront death and disease and brokenness and sin in us and to satisfy the wrath of his Father. Uh, He did not come simply primarily to be a conquering king on a throne, although one day he will. Uh, He came to be a suffering servant. And so he gives this message to the people. I am uh, the light of of the world. And then we're told in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many believed in him. And so my question for you uh, this morning is, will you? Like, will you believe in him? In your sin and in your brokenness, will you turn and trust in Jesus? One of the questions that we ask ourselves uh, when we open up the word is simply, what does God's word want me to do uh, with what he is saying to me uh, today? What does God want me to do with what I heard today? And so that's the question that I want to leave uh, with you. I want you to ask yourself that question. You've heard these words uh, from God's word. What do we do with them? Maybe for some of you, that's simply considering the invitation that is yours uh, to come. God invites you uh, to come. Maybe it is to share the good news of Jesus with someone else. Uh, Maybe your response today is to rejoice uh, in the truth that God's promises are true and to follow him is to not walk in darkness any longer, but to have the light of the world. Maybe your response is simply to uh, respond. And so I'm going to invite us um, to pray. I want to encourage you to bow your heads and close uh, your eyes. And I just want um, you to spend a moment with uh, the Lord. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we're going to come to the table together. So would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we've come to your word this morning, and we uh, have heard the truth of your word. We see a picture in your word, of of people who respond very differently uh, to your son. We see a picture of people who are far from him, uh, who reject him, who do not desire him, and we see a group of people who hear his words and they rest as words of life on their hearts. They see and they believe. Uh, It is my hope and prayer this morning that Uh, that each and every one of us would would see Jesus for who he is and that we would believe. I pray that you would fill our hearts uh, with confidence in who you are and what you have done on our behalf in and through Jesus. Uh, God, we give you thanks this morning for the promise uh, that to see Jesus as the light of the world is to never walk in darkness again and to experience light. We long for and are desperate for the life that is found in the light of Jesus. And so it's my hope and prayer that we would experience it uh, today. Uh, God, thank you so much for the hope in life that is ours. We love you. Uh, We thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.